Headline Hollywood. Entertainment cronies and cinema elitists hand out awards for excellence in moving pictures. Sometimes the winners don't hold up to the test of time, so we're here in the future to tell them how they got it wrong. This is Switch the Envelope. Welcome to Switch the Envelope, the podcast about movies, because movies. My name is Corey. My name is Jeff. How are you doing, Jeff? Fucking awesome. <laughs> that is great to hear, Jeff. How are you doing, Corey? I am, I'm doing good. You know, uh, getting by. Uh, lots of exciting things on the, on the horizon. You know, James Gunn uh, is going to be taking over DC, uh, which is exciting because the only really good DC movies were done by James Gunn. That's cool. You know. Uh, and it's the the first thing that the WB has done that is uh, made me feel happy about the WB Discovery merger because everything else has been a garbage fire. <laughs> Thank you for that uh, DC update. I will now wake back up. Mm-hmm. Anyway, everybody, welcome to Switch the Envelope. Corey, what's on the agenda for today? Oh, see, that's the thing. The, the cool things that are happening in the sort of movie world, got me inspired, Jeff. There is a uh, there's a funny comedian named Burt Kreischer. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Burt Kreischer's uh, stand-up material. You know I'm not, actually, Corey. So he's a, he's a funny comedian. I mean, I know comedy's subjective, but he, a few years ago, uh, released a sort of video version of a stand-up routine that he had kind of previously only done as a tag-on to his in-club uh, you know, stand-up sets. And it details his... Summer where he took, or maybe a, a semester in college where he went to Russia with his Russian studies or Russian language uh, class and inadvertently became a pawn for the Russian mob. Gotcha. Right? He released a trailer for a movie that is based on that stand-up routine. That sounds cool. Right. And it's basically the fallout years later, uh, the daughter of one of the guys that he messed with while he was, you know, being manipulated by the mob in Russia. She comes and finds him and, you know, whatever movie happens. Right. But I thought that was was really interesting. That's probably the the first time I can think of where a stand up routine became a movie. You know, oftentimes stand up comedians, especially like in the 80s and 90s, they would get they would develop their stand up routines into television shows. Yes. Right. You get a lot of comedians that, you know, sort of front their own sitcom, as it were. But I've never seen a stand up routine get turned into a movie. Right? You're right. Because, I mean, you had people like Tim Allen. Yeah. He famously took his stand up routine and made it into Home Improvement. That's, that that's was based right. on his stand up routine. Right. Ray Romano. Ray Every, Romano. Everybody loves Raymond. Yes. Yeah. You know, the Bill Ingvall had had a Bill Ingvall show based off of his stand-up routine. Yes. You know, all of those comedians go to, to TV, but this is the first time I've seen, like, a movie. And it's an, it's like an action, comedy, kind of a, you know, odd couple, buddy cop kind of a thing, it, it looks like. I it's, think, but didn't they base Halloween off of, uh, off of a comedy routine? Oh, yeah, that was Fred Armiston's uh, comedy routine. Yeah. Is Halloween, yeah. Yeah. I thought uh, I thought it was Mike Myers. Didn't, wasn't Michael oh, Myers Mike, a, that's the easy a comedy joke. routine? Yeah, that's the easy joke. Why I couldn't think of a comedian that would a tie to named Michael Myers, oh, who dumb. also was in the movie Halloween. But it's cool, Corey. It's cool, I'm, Corey. You didn't catch that joke. I'm we'll we'll dumb. pick it up later. Yeah, <laughs> but it got me thinking, Jeff. What other 
what are the like untapped story mediums could be turned into a cool Hollywood film? Well, Corey, you know, this is actually a, a, a subject that some people might not want to approach. There are comic book comic book purists that think that if you see a comic book movie, it is never as good as the original comic. There are bookworms out there that feel that if you make a book into a movie, that the movie is never as good as the original book, right? True as that might be, Jeff, that never inhibits Hollywood. What we're going to do right now, right, Corey, is we're going to yeah. actually look and see what sort of stuff Hollywood can fuck up. What haven't they fucked <laughs> yeah. up yet? We're going to give them some ideas for some things that they can bastardize and yes. make worse. Yes, What absolutely. can they make worse? Because we know that all the <laughs> stuff is great. We know that the books are great. The comic books are great. But what source material can we find that would also be great? Like, is there anything untapped that that could make a film? I've got two, Corey. You've got two. All right. I've got give, two. Give me one. Corey, there's a phenomenon. <laughs> there's a phenomenon in baseball. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell it to you. I'm going right. to see if you know this. All right. The movie 61. Okay. Starring Barry Pepper. As Roger Maris. And Billy Crystal directed it. Okay. <clears throat> this is a movie about the 1961 race to hit a home run that would beat the record set by Babe Ruth. Yeah. Now, the record set by Babe Ruth was 60 home runs set back in 1925, I think? Sure. 1927, something like that? I don't know. Whenever John Goodman hit all those home runs. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, when while, John while, Goodman... While, like, smoking cigars and eating uh, ballpark wieners. Exactly. <laughs> when John Goodman hit all those home runs, uh, he hit 60 home runs in a single season. His, his performance-enhancing drug was cholesterol. His, it was hot dogs. <laughs> he had hot dogs and beer, and he went out and hit all these home runs. Nitrates. Yeah. That's all I need. <laughs> So, stay with me, Corey. Right. Here, here, here we go. I'm with you. Roger Maris hit 61 home runs in 1961. Mm-hmm. Then he had to wait till 2022 until someone beat his record and hit more than 61 home runs, which was Aaron Judge, who hit 62. This year, yeah. This year, 2022. 1961, subtract from 2022, is 61 years. Oh, wow. Oh, so oh, he's long dead though. I mean, he's he, long dead. But he, sixty-one home runs in 1961 would not be beaten for sixty-one years when Aaron Judge would beat sixty-one home runs. So by hitting sixty-two, would this be like sixty-one squared instead of like sixty-one? Well, that's four sixty-one. That's four sixty-one. So sixty-one to the fourth. <laughs> no, no, but like you know, it's like it's a sequel, so it's got a two, right? Yeah, sixty-one squared. So. <laughs> I believe that a story that needs to be told would be either the power hitters, which nobody wants to see. Oh, the like Mark McGuire, Sammy the Mark Sosa, McGuire, Sammy Barry Sosa, Bonds. Barry Bonds, Bonds. Bonds hit seventy the year after or two years after. Uh, oh yeah, M- McGuire and Unbelievable Sosa beat the sixty-one that he did, even though he was like jacked on on friggin' yeah steroids. That title is just asterisk. <laughs> yeah, but he was still jacked on steroids, and he just yeah. Did. And then all three of those guys. And then the story of the of sixty one squared. I like I like the Aaron Judge story. Yeah, I like the Aaron Judge story also. I feel like I feel like you could run parallel stories, right? Both of like you have the nineteen sixty one baseball season and you have the twenty twenty two baseball season. Yes, running parallel throughout the film. Yes, and I like yeah. that. And also both Yankees. 
Yeah. Actually, all three, Babe Ruth, Mar- Roger Maris, and Aaron Judge are all three Yankees. Yeah, I, I think... It was a great story. I think it needs that would be, be compelling. It's a, it's a story that will need to be adapted. It's a very Yankee story. <laughs> yes. But I don't care. <laughs> Yankees, if the Cowboys are America's football team, the Yankees are for sure yeah, America's baseball they team. they are. That's true. That's Even though I, I don't like them when they play the Angels, they're for sure America's baseball team. hate the Yankees. It's, it's fun to hate the Yankees a little bit. It's also fun to love them. I'm, just, just, I'm sure it is very fun because they're very good. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. So you know who's going to play in it? Barry, Kevin Costner. Oh, I thought Barry Pepper. He would just <laughs> no, play Kevin both Costner. roles. It's Kevin Costner. He's got to play in it. <laughs> Kevin right? Costner. He's got to be. A, he's got to be the manager. He's got to be the. He's got to have something in it. Right. He plays in every baseball movie. It's true. Kevin Costner has to be in it. The, those are the caveats. Producers, if you're listening, you have to have Kevin <laughs> this, Costner, and you have to have Rene Russo. <laughs> it's somewhere in there. Yeah, they they uh, they're part of the contract. <laughs> They're part of the package. The MLB does not uh, allow the the licensing of their their paraphernalia without Kevin, <laughs> Kevin Costner. Costner or Rene Russo. <laughs> <laughs> All right, how about this, Jeff? A uh, how about it? A musical album. Tommy. Right? A collection. See, Tommy was already put into a film. It was animated. Oh, I must have missed that because no, it was must an have been terrible. Tommy was was turned into a, a film. Um, you know. A musical film. Right now, it's so you're going to say the new Green Day album that's on Broadway. No, because that's 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 on Broadway and it's terrible and it should not be a film. Yeah, you're right. It shouldn't even be. Uh, it should drop Green Day's status as a rock band <laughs> Just, off of any other list. It lowers their cool because it's not cool. Yeah. If it were cool, then you know status firmly planted. But American Idiot is it just. It already felt so commercial. Yeah, but then when they put it on Broadway, and then they put that it just as feels a Broadway gross. show. It felt even more like sellout material. Yeah, and it's just for a punk band from San Francisco. It feels a little. And off-brand, if I was, if if Kurt Cobain was still alive, and they they did and a they musical did of Nevermind, Never the musical, I would also say that's gross. Yeah, that doesn't that doesn't you, feel you know? right. Yeah, yeah. But those types of musicals are very popular right now. To take, they call them jukebox musicals usually, right? Uh, like Alanis Morissette has one, Jagged Little Pill, which uh, uh, by all accounts I've heard is actually very good. So it, it holds her status. But, um, you know, there's also, you know, like Elton John, I think, has one. And, you know, they, they, there's there's ones where they take a catalog of somebody or an album of somebody and they turn it into a narrative musical. But what if we did that for a movie? And not necessarily as a musical. We don't. It doesn't have to be a musical film. But to take the idea of one of these concept albums that has a narrative and turn it into a movie. And I found one. And it's really interesting because this is a, an album that was recorded in 1970, but is incredibly progressive for its themes. And so it could translate to today. And the album that I'm talking about Ooh, is... Wait, wait, wait. I got oh, this. I got this. Go ahead. Saturday Night Fever. <laughs> no. Oh, okay. No. Uh, also tied very much to a film. <laughs> Oh, uh, that is the Al- film already. It's, that is the film. Yeah, yeah it's. Wait, wait, wait! I got it. I got it's it. A sequel to. I got it. The Jimi Hendrix Experience. No, I don't know if that would lend itself to a story. Some of those are covers. You would, but everything would be just like hazy, hazy. There's <laughs> purple, purple haze. hazy. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> the. <laughs> The album is called Lola vs. Power Man and the Money Go Round by the Kinks. Now, is this the album that has 
Lola. It is the album Lola, that has Lola, Lola, Lola. Lola. Literally the worst song the Kinks have ever written. So it is one of their biggest hits. <laughs> no, it is not. It is. You obviously do not listen to the Kinks. From, from this album, uh, chart, chart-wise. Chart-wise. It is not. It, it charted very heavily in the UK and the US. It's interesting in the context of this story as well. Okay. So I'll let you go on this. The, the album itself is a fully realized concept narrative of a fictional band uh, called The Contenders, right? The first track gotcha. of the album is The Contenders, and it details this group of friends who are not individually very good at playing their instruments, but together they make magic. And they have this dream of sort of... Do they make magic all day and all of the night? <laughs> all day and all of the night. So this fictional band has this dream of, you know, seeing what the bigger world has to offer and the freedom of being able to write their music and get it out to to people and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And they're, they're, they're working class guys. They're well-respected men. No, they're just eh? working, eh? working class guys. Right, they're they're working day jobs to sort of uh, fuel their hobby of being musicians, and they're trying to sort of make a a scratch in in the world. Okay, right. I got it, Corey. I'm so tired, tired of waiting for you to go on with this. Tired go of ahead. waiting for you. Yes, the <clears throat> uh, the <laughs> God, you're derailing me with <laughs> your song title puns. Yeah, the song that they end up writing that becomes a hit in context of the album, is Lola, right? That's weird, because it's such a terrible song. Well, Lola turns out to be one of the highest chart-topping singles from this album. There are two two songs from this particular album that made the, the charts. One is uh, on side A, or the side one, uh, and that's Lola, and that was the bigger hit. And then the other one is called Ape Man, I think, and that was the, the side two. Do you know hit. that he rhymes Lola with Cola? That's yes. the big rhyme. Lola. So. Ca, 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 cola. San. That is a reference. So that song in particular, we could go on a lot about what he's saying in that song and, and whatnot. And that's partially what makes this so progressive for the time. Lola, as a song, if you don't know, you can go read the lyrics on you know the internet. It's about uh, trans clubs in Soho in London. And the clubs in in those days, in the like late 60s, would uh, overly sweeten their alcoholic drinks, right? So it was easier to, to drink the night away, right? They would add sugar and shit. So the line in the song talks about the champagne that tastes just like Coca-Cola because it's a fizzy drink that is overly sweet. It's a very sweet champagne, so it tastes like Coca-Cola. That, that's what, what he's saying there. But in the song... The narrator of the song describes himself as uh, not very masculine, not not very uh, sort of big in stature or, you know, sort of traditionally male, but then describes Lola as being very much masculine and broad and has a gravelly voice and looks like a woman and walks like a man. And they have an encounter and the messaging for 1970 feels way ahead of its time feels very much like the conversations that are happening now. So the relevancy for something like this would be uh, good for today's audiences. 
I actually don't think this is ahead of its time for the band that it was. Well, n- the band that no. it was was the Kinks. The Kinks were right. notably known for being edgy, just like the other bands that were performing at the same time as them. But I'm saying for it to be a top 10 hit in the U.S. and in the U.K. at the time is progressive. I'm saying that the bands that were around at the same time as the Kinks, like the Stooges, Blondie, all bands of the same genre, you know, were all very progressive because this wasn't a big deal back then. Lead singer of Judas Priest wore leather chaps. Then oh, they yeah. all, because that's where this type of um, the Velvet Underground, same way, that's where these kind of bands came from. They came from... Well, yeah, uh, Lou, Lou Reed famously has, you know, Walk on the Wild Side. That's yeah. about a, uh, he was a she is one of the lyrics. Yeah, they, you know. they all but came then, then from these he was, yeah. these clubs in New York and these clubs in London and these clubs. In, that That's where they derive from their bands from. So I don't really think it's an oddity that the Kinks are writing about no, no, this. It's, it's not odd for them to have written it. I'm saying that for the time, that subject matter to become a hit is progressive. Okay. Right. The album also, you know, it really tears into, it's a satirical look at the music industry told basically from the perspective of how jaded the members of the Kinks were, <laughs> you know, <clears throat> and it, it, uh, it sort of tears apart. Well, all their big hits had already happened. They had already had their big it, hits. This like, is their eighth, eighth studio album. Yeah, yeah. They're big. They already had their career basically. So, uh, so this, this tears into song publishers and unions and, the sort of hanger honors that come with success and the executives of record companies that pressure you to become hit making machines. Once you find some sort of success and the burden of celebrity, the isolation of celebrity, right? I think that that could also pull forward into today's times with this sort of internet influencer culture that, you know, you, you become famous for an image of who you are. But that isn't truly who you are. And I think it could dive into some of, some of those themes and expand on some of those themes. Because ultimately, you know, the, the band, or at least the narrator of the, uh, of the member of the band that we're talking about this entire time, they feel incredibly trapped, more so by the success in celebrity than they felt trapped in their sort of small town, not being able to tour the world and, you know, create their music. They realize that they feel more trapped now by the industry. And so they long to just escape and isolate themselves and become a a fucking recluse out out in the countryside. So you want to, so your whole idea is that you think that the concept from this album should be a movie. Yeah. I think the, the narration, the, the plot points are already really nicely planned out. The themes that are being expressed in the narrative, I think, are also very relevant to today. Cool. And it can be translated to today's times very seamlessly. Awesome. All right. So let's get into another adapted screenplay. Untapped adapted screenplay. Untapped. Now, Corey, um, I honestly don't know when we're going to release this, but right now, as it stands, this is November. Yeah. It's a season of giving. It is. It's a season of Thanksgiving. It is. And for me... In America, at least, yes. 
There are 500,000 Christmas movies on the Hallmark Channel. <laughs> Just the Hallmark Channel alone, uh, yes. They run repeatedly 24 7. 365 days a week. It's a uh, 365 days a year. We've discussed this previously. They uh, they have just a Mad Lib script, and they have certain details that they throw random. Yeah, and they just into. change the decorations in the back. But it's all the same movie. Yeah, they're horrible, horrible people that make those movies. But I just want to say that the one thing that I've always been bothered by is that there's so many Christmas movies. Mm -hmm. There's so many Halloween movies. There's nothing for Thanksgiving, dude. What do I, as a historian? Have to watch for Thanksgiving, Charlie Brown. I get. I mean, well, there there are a few like Home for the Holidays is a Thanksgiving movie. Yeah, planes, but it's how about trains, how you hate and your family. But you hate your family. It's weird. Yeah, uh, planes, trains, and automobiles. Yeah. Uh, other than that, Adams Family. <laughs> the Adams Family. The Adams Family is the only time that you see. Like the story of Thanksgiving. Depicted. And that's what I'm getting at. Okay. I guess. Anyway, <laughs> so there's a lot of movies that you can find. They're not good movies. Most of them are made for TV that show the Plymouth Mayflower landing. There's not a lot of movies about it. In fact, there's almost none where you actually show one of the pivotal, if it's supposed to be, the most pivotal moments in our country's history. There's almost none. No movies about it. But what's even more surprising is that there's no movies that show or depict or have any representation of the first Thanksgiving. Yeah, that's crazy. For it being such a significant ideal to our identity. To the holiday that we, yeah. we everyone gets. We get two days off. And because it's such a pivotal event, we know so much about it now. There's so many historians that have learned about it. We know almost every aspect we can know about the first Thanksgiving. And so... I mean, what we can know, because there wasn't, like, records that weren't sure. keeping, like, lunch. we were just new from journals and stuff. But right. still, we can know about it to make a movie that would actually show people this is what it was really like. God, I'd watch that movie, for sure. Yeah. The majority of, especially people in America, the majority of us, the, the information we have about Thanksgiving is probably derived from your second grade hand turkeys and cut out pilgrim hats. Right? <laughs> Yeah. And whatever I mean, story went along with, with that arts and crafts moment. We need to get one of those school. great historical movies that with, you know, the team of like Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks, right? Yeah. And then we just throw some Liam Hemsworth in there with some <laughs> have all, yeah, it'll be great casting. We'll love it. It'll be great film. Great film. Yeah, we'll get the, the lady from Prey. Yeah, her. She's she's great. Uh if you haven't seen Prey, go see Prey. It's really good. Just a, not an ad. <laughs> I just really <laughs> like that movie. Uh, yeah, no, I, I would totally be interested in a movie that is a little more faithful to what really happened for Thanksgiving. Although, Absolutely. Although, if they don't, uh, we have a history of fiction episode to come <laughs> to put up with it. Like, yeah, and if no. they put out one that's shit, we will do a history of fiction You're on the movie. You're just going to be screaming, they put a turkey on the table, Corey. <laughs> eels, I tell you, eels. All right, last untapped... Or from our selection, untapped adapted screenplay uh, that has potential. And and honestly, if you have an untapped story that you think would make a good adapted screenplay, hit us up on Twitter at Switch Envelope or on our Instagram at Switch the Envelope and let us know a story that you think would make a great film that hasn't already been adapted. For this last one, though, Jeff, I'm going war film. War film. Yeah, but not 
a war war film, a Cold War film. Cold War? And I know what you're saying, or what you're thinking. Like, there's been a thousand Cold War, you know, one side is moving or the other side's moving. Who's going to make a step? I was literally thinking that. It's almost like we had like a text I know. You're, fight you're thinking this. You're thinking that because it is true. There are a lot of stories about the Cold War, but the Cold War took place over like 40 years. And so there's a lot of stories within the Cold War that can be told independent of each other, and some of them haven't been told, and some of them are very interesting. One in particular is the one that I'm going to bring up. Okay, before you go forth, are there nuclear weapons? Yes. Are they pointed at each other? Yes. Does it come down to the wire? Very much so. Then this is done before, but go ahead. <laughs> so as a genre, yes. <laughs> it is not a genre. It is a, it is a storyline that is repeated over right. and over and over again. But this one actually happened. Have you ever heard of the Cuban Missile Crisis? Yes, but the Cuban Missile Crisis happened in the 60s. This takes place in the early 80s. Way different. Totally different. <laughs> okay, let's hear it. All right, so there was a Russian lieutenant, right? His name's got to be Yuri. No, his name is Stanislav Petrov. I like it my way. In 1983, on September 26th, he is the only man in Russia watching over a, a missile alarm system. They got one guy looking at a monitor, right? And it's, it's Stanislav Petrov. And the alarm goes off. And he's sitting there like, oh shit, uh, there's a nuclear missile that's uh, been flagged by our satellite system. And he thinks to himself, now wait a minute, would they just send one? And he thinks to himself, if the U.S. was going to try to destroy us, they wouldn't fire a warning shot. So he's like, perhaps this is a malfunction of the system. Right? He doesn't tell his higher-ups. Okay. He doesn't run it up the chain of command. He makes an executive decision with his monitor telling him that there is a missile impending uh, that's going to hit Russian soil very soon. And he decides... No, the other, the other factors here don't make sense. Good job, Pete. And he decides to let it go. And he tries to corroborate from, you know, sort of like people on uh, the ground lookouts say like, hey, is, is a missile coming? Anybody see something? Uh, on, on their ground level, you, you know, devices to, to see if a missile is coming. And there was no missile. But he's sitting at the console, ready to like push the button to alert the people up the chain of command to send countermeasures. There's automatic countermeasures that the Russian government had in place that if missiles are coming in, we just launch a whole bunch. It's basically the the scenario that's in um, every movie. No, that Ma that uh, Matthew Broderick uh, movie, War Games. War Games. Yeah, yeah, where like global nuclear war. Yeah, I know. is unwinnable because one of the other thousand movies that when, are like this. when one comes they all come kind of a thing right and so he chalks it up to like phew, missed one later that day his alarm goes off again and now it's four missiles 
Okay. And he goes, I think it's the same thing. Because in his assessment, based off of the propaganda that he's been fed from his government and his understanding of how this scenario would would likely happen, it would be in the the hundreds. He would see his whole screen just blowing up with, you know, pardon the pun, with hundreds of ballistic missiles coming to their region. So what happened at the end, Corey? So he decides to let it go again. No, I mean, what happens at and the end of the story? And he's, and he's lucky. Now, he gets praised, but he was shaken for a minute over, over that, that button, right? That sets up a few months later where the UN or the where NATO and the US start performing a a war exercise called Archer uh, Able Archer 83 right so Stanislav Petrov is is like the first act right tensions are high is there missiles is there not missiles false alarms here and there then Able Archer 83 happens and Able Archer 83 is a bunch of sort of like military exercises that the U.S. forces and NATO forces together would do to simulate a DEFCON 1. And I think this sounds like crazy. a really good episode of Quantum Leap. <laughs> where where he, ju- he leaps into the Russian guy. Yeah, that, he leaps into the Russian guy. He's, he's like, I can't push there. the button. It doesn't feel right. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, and he's got the, the talking... The talking hologram with them, yeah. who's saying, you know, this is not how. This, you, you, and then they tell him at the end, like, what happened was you actually, like, you know, you launched the missiles. You know, that is a great episode of Quantum Leap. As a movie, eh. Maybe that's why it appeals to me, because it feels like a good episode of Quantum Leap. Yeah. <laughs> eh, it doesn't feel like a movie to me. It really doesn't. It doesn't really? It doesn't have a movie-ness to it. Oh, you got some Alec Baldwin in there. Alec Baldwin playing you know? Trump? No, not Trump. <laughs> Reagan. <laughs> I don't feel like it's. I don't feel like it would be a movie. I don't think there's enough to it. There's a guy sitting at a computer saying no. No, that, do that's it. that's just the the like. Now you could have Dana Carvey doing prelude. his George W. Bush and be like, not gonna do not it. Not gonna do it. Not gonna do Reagan, it. Reagan, you shouldn't do it. <laughs> don't hit. Don't do it. Don't poke the bear, Reagan. <laughs> yeah, that's not a good. That's not a good look. Anyway, that that's all of. Do you have any like uh, honorable mentions that didn't didn't quite make one the honorable list? mention that I would like to put out there is not a movie that has not been adapted. It's one that's been adapted badly. There is not a good representation of my favorite book, Lord of the Flies. We need a new adaptation oh. of Lord of the Flies. There was one made in the '90s that was absolutely bad. It was wrong. It was R-rated, and it was. Uh, well, I mean, they they. Crush a dude's head with a rock. I can but see where they. It was R rated be. because of. First of all, it's got the wrong ending. It's got the wrong beginning. It's just not correct. Hmm. The whole movie is just not very good. It's just incorrect in a lot of spots, and it's just honestly not a great movie. Um, and the the other one is not bad. It's just old. The other one comes from I don't know <laughs> the fifties or sixties or something. That's the very one I remember seeing move. in school. <laughs> yeah, old old movie. So we really need to have a new version of Lord of the Flies because it is such a great story. It is such a great story. Uh, right away, you know, it, it's literature that is common reading amongst school age children, uh, high school age children, whatever. Uh, like Netflix just released. All Quiet on the Western, or yeah, All Quiet on the Western Front. Yeah, which is another book that a lot of people read in high school. So a lot of people are familiar with that that literature. It makes sense. You know, a lot of a lot of times when you look at 
you know, books that haven't been adapted that are very famous. Catcher in the Rye shows up. To that effect, we need a new version of fucking To Kill a Mockingbird. Yes. Great oh, damn would... book. Although the Gregory Peck version uh, of the book is Yeah, but no fantastic. kids are going to watch no, that now. No, 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 no. no kids are going to watch it. They, as soon as I mean, they see they Black sh- and White, they they're sh- like, fuck that. They should because it's it's really good. But but I will say the book is better than that version yes, of the movie. Yes, well, the book is always going to be I better. actually love that book. They need a new version of that movie too. So a young, or, really, yeah. young Robert Duvall in uh, as Boo Radley in that in that movie. Yeah, Gregory Peck. Oh, it's so good. But anyway, so those are our honorable mentions. Those are the the untapped stories we found. But again, if you if you find any, or if you know of any, if you're like, why haven't they ever made this story into a movie? Hit us up at Switch Envelope on Twitter or at Switch the Envelope on Instagram. And uh, let us know what movie you think is an untapped, adapted screenplay worthy. Or you go to our website, switchdownvelope.com. Like and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts if you have not done that already. Uh, But more importantly, tell a friend. Encourage others to listen to the show. Uh, That is how we, we spread this, and we are much appreciative of those of you who have already done that. And we'll see you later, Switches. Bye, Switches. Switch the Envelope was written and directed by Faulkner. Faulkner is producing and directing this episode. Faulkner is your best friend. Fox, Switch the Envelope. Faulkner is our greatest and most trusted ally. Switch the Envelope was written and produced in front of Faulkner. Now let's go get that motherfucker. Faulk. Nerd.